This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening and welcome under extraordinary weather conditions to our very final and timely Human Nature Talk for 2019. My name is Sue Saxon and I'm a creative producer at the Australian Museum. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather tonight, the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present, as well as their continuing culture and contribution to the life of this city and region. Now you may have noticed the impressive crane in position at the Australian Museum, hard at work on Project Discover, a transformative year-long renovation. Inside it's business as usual for our scientists' research, and we're busy planning for the reopening in late 2020. The $57.5 million renovation will reveal expanded exhibition and public floor space, a major new touring exhibition hall, new flexible education spaces, an expanded grand hall, and more public amenities. And in 2021, will be one of only 10 venues in the world to host the spectacular Tutankhamun treasures of the Golden Pharaoh. But I really want to thank you all for coming along with us and thanks to the Anzac Memorial for their generous assistance to present this final fascinating Human Nature Series event. Heartfelt thanks to our five university partners, the Universities of Sydney, New South Wales, Macquarie, Western Sydney and Wollongong for their wonderful contribution. With their assistance, we've featured leading international and Australian environmental humanities scholars who've shared challenging perspectives on the complexities of our environmentally troubled age. Over this year, we've traversed Central America, the Pacific, Southeast Asia, the Arctic, and of course, Australia, in stimulating, but at times very troubling talks. And tonight, environmental historian Andrea Gaynor of the University of Western Australia reiterates this state of emergency we're officially in today with her galvanizing conclusion to the year's talks on the existential environmental crisis we face in the Anthropocene. So to introduce our special guest, I'd like to call on Dr. Emily O'Gorman, who is Senior Lecturer in the Department of Geography and Planning at Macquarie University, where she also co-leads the Environmental Humanities Research Group. Please join me in welcoming Emily. Thanks, Sue. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening. Uh, Andrea Gaynor, as Sue mentioned, is an environmental historian and she is Associate Professor of History and Chair of the History Discipline Group at the University of Western Australia. A 2019 National Library of Australia Fellow, Gaynor is Director of the Centre for Western Australian History, Convener of the Australian and New Zealand Environmental History Network and a member of the Belia Group, did I pronounce? Bilia Group. Um, professors for Environmental Responsibility. Gaynor's research, which seeks to harness the contextualising and narrative power of history to address real-world problems, is currently engaged in histories of water in Australian urbanisation, nature in Australian urban modernity, and land care in Western Australia. She's worked with diverse organisations, including the Western Australian Department of Parks and Wildlife, Western Power, and WWF Australia 
and is the co-author of An Environmental History of Australia, Australia's Mallee Country in 2019 and co-editor of Reclaiming the Urban Commons, The Past, Present and Future of Food Growing in Australian Towns and Cities, published in 2018. So Andrea has assured me that there will be plenty of time for discussion and questions at the end. Um, so she deliberately left that time so we can have a bit of a, a chat, I suppose, towards the end. So welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you, Emily, and thank you, Sue, for those kind introductions. And thank you all for coming out on such a, a warm and blustery uh, emergency kind of day. I should point out before I begin that this image was chosen well ahead of time, um, but turned out to be quite prescient. I don't think, I hope people don't think it's insensitive, but in fact here is exactly where we're at. I too would like to acknowledge uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge the Noongar people, uh, the Wajak um, people of the Noongar Nation on whose land I live and work. So earlier this year, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg told the wealthy and influential people assembled that she didn't want their hope. She wanted them to act as if our house is on fire, because it is. When your house is on fire, do you want a historian or a firefighter? Well, of course, on days like today, you want a real actual firefighter, don't you? Um, and we do need firefighters for sure, we need actual firefighters. We also need the metaphorical firefighters, the politicians, businesses and everyday people who are prepared to step up and tackle the climate and biodiversity emergencies. But this is no ordinary fire. We won't be packing away the hoses and heading home when the wind changes. This is transforming our homes, in many cases beyond recognition. And yet our inner lives continue. We remain beings who need histories to understand the world and place ourselves within it. Of course, histories are not the only stories. We need poetry, we need film, we need novels. As Amitav Ghosh has argued, the climate crisis is also a crisis of culture and thus of the imagination. And of course, we can say the same about the parallel um, biodiversity crisis. Ghosh proposed that we need to prize even the realist novel away from its anthropocentrism. Our fictions across all genres should create room in our cultural matrix, in our imagination, for the climate and ecological crises. They should make it impossible to think of the world in other than more than human terms. And they should serve always as a present remembering of both our power and our many natural entanglements. Yet I'd argue that there are important and particular roles for history. Alexandra Lekinich proposes that history always does, in the end, leave one stranded exactly where one already is. Always it comes too late to make any difference. Yet I'm not alone in believing that there remains an important role for history in understanding and responding to our current predicament. American historian Paul Kramer recently observed that while we often lament, or we hear the lament that history is all but absent from public life, in fact, for better or worse, it is everywhere. So in this lecture, I outline, I'm going to outline how I see history being used and how it could be used when our house is on fire. So I want to start by identifying and engaging with the deployment of history in the escalating debates over the climate and ecological crises. And I want to advocate for radical remembering, a practice of radical remembering, as a way to counter dangerous histories and provide the insights and kind of emotional fortitude and energy 
we need to work towards a better world, or at least survive in the one we have. And I argue that this remembering can and should be directed toward a, a range of ends. There's diverse radical remembering practices. So remembering the diversity and abundance we have destroyed. Correcting histories that seek to deny or normalise climate change and ecological crisis. Building faith in environmentalism as a social movement. Seeking parallels, lessons and explanations. Holding wrongdoers to account, which is perhaps a little bit controversial for some historians. But also telling the complicated and intimate more than human histories that excavate the strategies through which we've always tried to reconcile our situation as agents of both destruction and life. So the target of this radical remembering is business as usual because we truly cannot keep going on as before. Industrialising societies have grown by turning the free work of the biosphere of ecological processes into capital. They've expanded through exploiting these frontiers of what Jason Moore calls cheap nature. They've also channeled women's unpaid work into the circuit of capital. But these frontiers are closing. We're almost out of cheap nature. The sink is full to overflowing. And the vast numbers of disappearing birds and insects tell us, if we will listen, that the global life support system is shutting down. George Monbiot, the controversial Guardian columnist, recently declared that remembering is a radical act. So he was referring not only to the collapse of ecosystems and disappearance of wildlife, but also past hopes and ambitions for environmental protection that now appear radical, even unachievable. Without such remembering, we have only the silence of forgetting. As Tom Griffiths explains, silences are not just absences, although they can be manifest in that way. Silences are often discernible and palpable. They shape conversation and writing. They are enacted and constructed. So if we're not remembering, then we are part of the forgetting. In many ways, George Monbiot is just catching up with what environmental historians have been doing for many years. For example, in the, uh, in the, the concept of shifting baselines, the idea that the, the environment at which a scientist or a person first observes it is its natural state that fails to take consideration of past exploit, exploitation and the potential of any given uh, ecosystem. So work in this area has been addressing the problem of intergenerational forgetting in fisheries, especially the fisheries um, and maritime environmental historians have been real pioneers in this, um, in this area. But as news cycles shorten, along with attention spans, and while the scale and pace of environmental destruction grows, the act of remembering ecological pasts and possibilities is becoming more radical. We need to remember, for example, the sheer scale of wildlife depletion by European colonisers. André Bernaldez, writing about Columbus's second voyage in 1494, exclaims that the sea around southeastern Cuba was thick with turtles, this is green turtles, which are now endangered, they were of the very largest, so numerous that it seemed the ships would run aground on them and were as if bathing in them. Using calculations based on 17th to 18th century hunting records from the Cayman Islands, Jeremy Jackson has estimated that the pre-Columbian Caribbean was home to 33 to 39 million green turtles. The fishery crashed in the latter half of the 18th century due to overhunting, and today green turtles in the region number only in the tens of thousands. Better remembered is the North American passenger pigeon. Single great flocks of the bird once darkened the skies for hours as they passed over a single spot. Their endling, Martha, died in captivity in 1914. 
Also increasingly remembered are the great herds of bison that once thundered across the plain of Midwestern North America and are only now being reintroduced to the remnant commons of their former domain. Many of you might be familiar with this image of a pile of um, bison skull uh, ready to be made into fertiliser as a kind of indicative of the scale of the slaughter. Australia too has witnessed similar depletions and deletions of entire species from hunting, disease, introduced predators, loss of habitat and the murder and dispossession of the Aboriginal people who belonged to and cared for country and all of their non-human kin. So here's an example from Western Australia which shows the number of species extinct uh, which is concentrated on what is now the main centre of human population along the, um, the Swan Coastal Plain. This is birds. It's a different pattern of distribution for, for mammals. So histories can provide context and feeling to these clinical kind of assessments reflected in mapping exercises like this one, along with the kinds of storying projects being undertaken by, by Tom Van Doren and colleagues in extinction studies. So we need this kind of radical remembering to help us cry, enough, enough and to renew our commitment to put caring for the earth and each other at the heart of our social and economic projects, to pursue what Francis Flanagan calls an updated social contract for our warming world that recognises anew that the purpose of our economy, and thus of work, which was the focus of her paper, is to facilitate the flourishing of our living systems. But we also need radical remembering to disrupt the perversions of the past that create a quagmire of untruth and diversion. As Georgetown historian Dagmar de Groot puts it, the past is a battleground where deniers, as in climate deniers, use dated and inaccurate science and history to promote their disastrous policies. Within climate denial discourse, history is often deployed to deadly ends. We hear, for example, that the climate has always been changing. And of course, this is true. There have been a range of natural events from volcanoes to changes in the Earth's orbit and tilt that have affected past climates. A prime example is the so-called Little Ice Age, a period of relatively cool northern hemisphere winters between the early 15th and mid-19th centuries. So that's reflected in the, uh, the reconstructions here. Climate change deniers offer this as evidence that recent warming is just another example of natural variation. Of course it isn't, although the Little Ice Age does provide evidence that even relatively small variations in average temperature can produce enormous, enormous social consequences. The Little Ice Age saw famine, epidemics and social unrest, as well, it must be said, as ingenuity and adaptation on a vast scale. Yet even at its coldest, it represented less of a deviation from long-term averages than the global heating we're experiencing now. So it can be an instructive kind of um, uh, case study for us, but we're all well beyond the, the half a degree of cooling that was experienced during this period, um, and we're going the other way. So past climate variation should make us more, not less, concerned for the present. On similar lines, we hear in Australia that September bushfires are nothing new, and of course we have Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack yesterday saying, we've had fires in Australia since time began. We hear that Townsville is always flooded, that for over a century we've known Australia as a land of drought and flooding rains. Climate variation and climate change are not the same thing, but historical stories of past extremes are often used in attempts to confound the difference. We also hear that environmentalists have predicted catastrophe in the past, and these predictions have not come true, so why should we believe them this time? It's true that some predictions have been based on faulty science or no science at all, but other predictions have subsequently proven correct. 
1973, John Sawyer at the UK's Met Office predicted that the Earth would warm by 0.6 degrees by the year 2000, which was pretty much spot on. Models produced by James Hansen's NASA team in the 1980s also approximated subsequent climate trends. An impressive feat, given the complexity of Earth climate systems and the relative um, lack of computing power that they had at the time. But some predictions turned out to be wrong, or partly wrong, because the predictions themselves played a, played a part in changing the future. In the early 1970s, for example, environmental scientists in the US were making grim predictions about air pollution. Life magazine reported scientists as saying, in a decade, urban dwellers will have to wear gas masks to survive air pollution, though actually, they said, this would happen unless we found a solution. Partly as a result of such predictions, in the 1970s, environmentalists agitated for more stringent controls on air pollutions, pollution, rather, and amendments to the American Clean Air Act improved the situation somewhat. Gas masks no longer seemed necessary. Even still, there were 135,000 deaths related to air pollution in the US in 1990. Similarly, Rachel Carson was attacked by the chemical industry for her prediction that indiscriminate use of organochlorine pesticides would lead to thinning of bird eggshells and ultimately a silent spring. Her work led to the phasing out of DDT use in the USA, and the silent spring did not eventuate. At least it hasn't yet. The rolling back of environmental policies in the neoliberal 1980s and the widespread uptake of neonicotinoid pesticides has contributed to the collapse of northern insect populations and the birds that depend on them. In North America alone, bird populations have declined 29% since 1970. That's three billion missing birds. So not only did these projections motivate regulatory change that shifted historical trajectories, we now see that such change was often insufficient or temporary and the predictions could yet come to pass. So these are adversarial histories. They're kind of lobbed from trenches to the right and left, every false salvo needing a fearless corrective. But history is also being mobilised to illuminate the possibility of positive social change. As Anna Singh has argued, it takes concrete histories to make any concept come to life. And at a time when business as usual seems so entrenched, we need to remember that far-reaching and rapid social change is possible. Some examples. Greta Thunberg, in a recent speech to American Congress, invoked the spirit of Martin Luther King and other civil rights activists who marched from Selma to Montgomery in protest against ongoing discrimination against black voters in Alabama. At any given Extinction Rebellion meeting, these kinds of stories from the civil rights movement, from the suffrage movement um, and the Aboriginal rights movement, other kinds of activist movements are profiled very prominently as examples of the way in which nonviolent direct action has in the past achieved concrete social change. Even the journal Nature recently published a call for scientists to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience, invoking the examples of Rosa Parks, Emmeline Pankhurst, Martin Luther King and Mohandas Gandhi. Francis Flanagan has also usefully pointed to less prominent examples of past negotiation and agreement on uh, arrangements for a more fair and just world. The Australian conciliation and arbitration system uh, established and refined in the early 20th century, while imperfect, were underpinned by a vision of a fair society in which economic systems serve the higher purpose of human development and they rejected the intrusion of competitive markets where they would not serve this end. 
We've come to think of the market as supreme and there's not much we can do about that. But these kinds of histories show us that there are other alternatives and they were existent um, not very long ago. Then there are the intimate histories of sustained local environmental action, the quiet histories about the tree planters, the land carers, the friends of particular bushland patches. While not revolutionary or indeed sufficient to head off the crisis, this work has often generated flourishing multi-species communities and a way of reorienting human values. So in our current environmental predicament, we need what China Mieval calls hope with teeth. And history yields inspiring stories of how thoughtful and committed people have achieved change, even unlikely rapid change in the face of political resistance, by building popular movements. Here, as Rebecca Solnit writes, the most important battle is often in the collective imagination, and it's won in part by books, ideas, songs, speeches, even new words and frameworks for old evils. That is, it is won at least partly through changing narratives. Now this comes as no surprise to historians. Indeed, 27 years ago, in a highly influential essay, environmental historian Bill Cronin wrote that narratives remain our chief moral compass in the world. Because we use them to motivate and explain our actions, the stories we tell change the way we act in the world. So we need encouraging histories that provide hope and inspiration for everyday leaders, but we also, I think, need barbed and incendiary histories that hold wrongdoers to account and keep watch over the present. There is no justice without history. We need to remember that fossil fuel companies and politicians knew about the atmospheric effects of burning fossil fuels, and indeed in the 1980s were ready to act on that knowledge. In a congressional hearing in 1982, a Republican, a Republican from Pennsylvania stood up and said, we have been told and told and told that there is a problem with the increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We all accept that fact and we realise that the potential consequences are certainly major in their impact on mankind. Now is the time, he said. The research is clear. It's now to, up to us to summon the political will. This is 1982. Even Margaret Thatcher, at least for a while, took climate change seriously, though with a predictably economic angle. She wrote, It may be cheaper or more cost-effective to take action now than to wait and find we have to pay much later and she established the UK's Hadley Centre for Climate Research. But the momentum for change was thwarted by political commitment to a neoliberal vision for economic growth. As the opportunity for action was sacrificed in the service of market freedom and small government, the fossil fuel companies and their allies in the automotive industry dug in and began sowing seeds of doubt about climate science to enable business as usual. We need these histories that bear witness to the manifold betrayals of the living planet. Turning closer to home, we should remember, for example, that successive Western Australian governments knowingly ruined millions of hectares of stolen Noongar land. The relationship between the clearing of vegetation and salinity was recognised in Western Australia before 1897. In the 1910s, scientists studying the salinity of soils in the wheat belt and beyond had their findings rejected as scientific prejudice. By 1924, engineer W.E. Wood had published a paper explaining that the salt accumulated over millions of millennia, or over millennia of rainfall in an old and poorly drained landscape. Clearing the vegetation caused the water tables to rise, and with them, the salt. Yet successive Western Australian governments vigorously encouraged the clearing of millions of hectares of bushland for agricultural development in full knowledge that most of the streams and some of the land would consequently become saline. 
archival documents clearly demonstrate that for many decades, Western Australian governments wavered between suppressing information on the incidence and spread of salinity and denying its seriousness. For example, in 1928, salt appeared on the farm of a soldier settler in the eastern wheat belt. The Agricultural Bank recommended that the block be reclassified, entailing the writing down of value and hence debt. But the Surveyor General rejected this recommendation because he feared the state, quote, would be inundated with similar applications from other selectors who have taken up land in the vicinity. The Agricultural Bank had already written down several accounts in the area and remarkably anticipated more trouble as clearing operations extend. So they chose not to stop it, just to witness. Similarly, in 1930, the general manager of the Agricultural Bank reported to the Minister for Lands that several settlers were unable to grow crops due to excessive soil salinity. The minister replied, and it's there written in the archive, that he did not think too much publicity should be given to the matter. In the 1930s and 40s, agricultural scientists L.J.H. Tickle and G.H. Burville explained and publicised the hydrology and seriousness of salinity in the wheat belt. Yet between 1948 and 1969, successive Western Australian governments sold off an average of 400,000 hectares, a million acres of land for agriculture every year, every year between 48 and 69, and the issue continued to be denied and suppressed. In the river catchments of the wetter southwest, where government had a direct economic interest in protecting its potable water supplies, it still took 25 years of internal pressure from public works department scientists and others before rigid clearing controls were introduced from 1976 onwards. So today, dryland salinity in Western Australia's agricultural areas, which looks like this, is estimated to directly affect up to 2 million hectares and cost over half a billion dollars a year in lost agricultural production. With few exceptions, the southwest rivers also suffer from increasing salinity levels and much of the wheat belt's remaining biodiversity is being damaged by the slowly spreading salt. And the effects of salinising land and water are not only economic and environmental. Areas affected by dryland salinity uh, have an elevated risk of hospitalisations for depression. So we need to keep telling these histories because the perpetrators should be brought to account and bear a larger share of the burden of remediation. If we let such historical injustices slide, it's no wonder that present-day perpetrators believe they can get away with wrongdoing underpinned by similar strategies of denial and misinformation. And uh, I'm not quite sure that this guy's got the target right, but I do admire his, uh, his passion and his recognition of the, um, the importance of history. We also need these histories because the opportunities lost should make us angry, and we need some anger to give us the courage to commit to change. History has also been explicitly drawn into service of the present by those seeking parallels that can offer guidance in a time of crisis. And perhaps the most common analogy here is the Second World War. So in 2016, Bill McKibben, who famously wrote of the end of nature and more recently has founded the environmental organisation 350.org, declared that, quote, we're under attack from climate change and our only hope is to mobilise like we did in World War II. <clears throat> he characterised carbon and methane as the deadliest enemy of all time and proclaimed, it's not that global warming is like a world war, it is a world war, and it's a world war that we're losing. In response, McKibben proposed a massive state-controlled program of construction of renewable energy technology factories, churning out solar panels and um, wind turbines on a vast scale, similar to these um, munitions factories. 
In the 1940s, many businesses and individuals resisted incorporation into this kind of managed wartime economy. And the kind of aggressive top-down state intervention in manifold aspects of economic life that we saw during World War II seems a very remote prospect in our neoliberal times. But it's also deniable, undeniable, rather, that the destructive conditions of war provided economic benefits, for example, in enabling women and minorities to get reasonably well-paid factory jobs. So these themes appeared in the new Green New Deal resolution put to Congress by Representative Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Edward Markey in February this year. The text included the claim, quote, that a new national, social, industrial and economic mobilisation on a scale not seen since World War II and the New Deal era is a historic opportunity, one, to create millions of good high-wage jobs in the US, Two, to provide unprecedented levels of prosperity and economic security for all people of the US. And three, to counteract systemic injustices. However, this complex, the complex history of the Second World War also reveals some pitfalls of this interpretation. Roy Scranton, for example, argues that the sacrifices and struggles of the 1940s have begun to seem like a kind of romantic story of collective heroism, when in fact they were a time of rage, fear, grief, and social disorder. Scranton highlights what McKibben leaves out. The restrictions on free speech, the violent race riots, the imprisonment of enemy aliens, and the birth of the military-industrial complex, along with the national security state, the nuclear arms race, and a culture of militarism. Bristol geographer Franklin Ginn, too, in his nuanced examination of home food production campaigns in World War II, has emphasised that even this kind of seemingly benign wartime program created resentments and divisions that lingered well after the war ended. Scranton also points out ways in which our current situation differs from the late 1930s. There's no clearly defined and agreed upon enemy. There are a range of competing agendas of which climate change is but one. And at the same time, the problem of climate change is bigger, much bigger than anything we've encountered before. It is, essentially, the problem of how and whether human beings can live sustainably on this planet. It's becoming increasingly evident that scale and pace of action required to address the climate and ecological crises would necessitate something like the kind of total mobilisation seen in World War II. As such, I think these more nuanced histories may help prepare us for the increasingly anxious and divisive times ahead. So these are some of the ways in which we face an always uncertain present armed with the past. Many of these are big historical stories, mythical ones even. But one only has to consider the phrase, make America great again, to understand, as Paul Kramer argues, that even seemingly small historical gestures can summon worlds. We see this in Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison's take on our current predicament. In an interview on the school strike for climate movement, he said, and I quote, I feel great about my future. For my children, our children as Australians, and whatever challenges come our way, we'll deal with them like we always have. Now let's dwell on that gesture, for, that phrase for a while and reflect on the world that's summoned by this small historical gesture. We'll deal with challenges like we always have. There is a germ of truth here, but much hangs on the we. Who is the we? Humanity as a whole has proven remarkably resilient, surviving epidemics, tsunamis, volcanoes, flood, fire, and the wider challenge of feeding and housing growing populations of our own kind. However, viewing humanity as a whole obscures the highly uneven distribution of risks and benefits within these historical processes. 
we in the global north have dealt with environmental challenges such that we have often, uh, yeah, such that we have often not had to see, much less live with, the consequences. Our prosperity has been underpinned by the devastation of indigenous lives and ecologies, by the theft of land and labour, and the outsourcing of environmental harm to the shadow places of the world. These are obviously not the histories the Prime Minister was hoping to invoke, and his confidence speaks to the ongoing dominance of nation-building histories, histories of innovation and aspiration, of hardy men rolling up sleeves and getting on with the job, the stump-jump plough and the mallee roller, pastoralists and prospectors boldly setting off into the unknown and building empires through tenacity and business acumen, perhaps even the hard work and sacrifice of migrant workers on the Snowy Hydro Scheme. These are histories in which challenges are overcome and prosperity built through individual resilience and effort. But these histories too can be dangerous. They allow us the comfort of thinking that we can go on as we have before and things will be just fine. They sit in the background whispering, everything will be all right. They prop up business as usual. <clears throat> they are enticing histories for those who are doing well or who are clinging to time-honoured aspirations for intergenerational upward mobility. The hope that if only we keep working hard, things will be better for our children. They are also a source of hope for those who are struggling, for whom the prospect that things could get worse is too difficult to countenance. But if we look inside that box of histories labelled progress, we find that they are more complicated than at first appears. They're full of what Anna Singh calls contaminated diversity. And here too, there are processes of deliberate forgetting at work that we need to counter through radical remembering. Let's take, for example, a story that won't leave me alone. Like the salinity story, it emerges out of the process of large-scale conversion of bushland and woodland into farmland in southwestern Australia over the 20th century. The farms created in this process have provided a livelihood for many families and sustained rural communities. Schools, footy fixtures, craft fairs and brass bands, romance, weddings, babies, funerals. New, more than human settler worlds enabled by the hard work and resilience of those who survived drought, heat, flood, isolation and market forces. By the mid to late phase of this expansion in the southern part of the region, most Aboriginal people had been moved to reserves, particularly those at Nwangarup and Karalup. But many of their non-human kin remained. As vast hectares of bushland were chained down, burnt and turned into farms, millions of reptiles, mammals, baby birds and invertebrates unable to escape the clearing front were crushed, suffocated, entrapped or suffered traumatic injury from falling vegetation, chains or bulldozers. Those unable to escape the subsequent fires were incinerated. The survivors, many in pain or distress, would then suffer and often die as they either returned to the hostile site of their annihilated homes or face dehydration, starvation, predation or competition in unfamiliar terrain beyond the clearing. It was a wildlife holocaust of unthinkable proportions. Many plants in the southwest are fire adapted in one way or another, and the season after a clearing fire produces fresh growth and abundant flowers. Mullies spring back from lignotubers. Delicate orchids burst into colour. New life rises from the ashes. Yet for the foodscapes of industrial agriculture, this vigorous regrowth too had to be subdued. Mallee roots raked, poison plants picked, wildflowers ploughed back into the soil. Many of the settlers who came to the region to make farms <laughs> fell in love with the bush. They loved its riotous spring colours, its unusual plant forms, its shy marsupials, its flourishing bird life. 
Yet carried along by the enormous momentum of the project for which they had signed up, they transformed or destroyed so much of it anyway. At least one farmer couldn't bear to witness the annihilation and ploughed in the regrowth at night. And this is part of the story too. It's these complicated histories that perhaps open up the space on which to reflect and have difficult, open conversations about the future because they point to the deep ambivalence at the heart of the set, our settler projects of unsustainable development. And they illuminate how it is that we all enable business as usual to flourish. As Singh puts it, perhaps we need to tell and tell until all our stories of death and near death and gratuitous life are standing with us to face the challenges of the present. It's in listening to that cacophony of troubled stories that we might encounter our best hopes for precarious survival. So this is another dimension of radical remembering, another way in which history can show us what it is that we really don't want to know but must confront. We need such unsettling, destabilising, risky histories in order to open opportunities for necessary and radical change. In the wake of the de devastating 2009 Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria, Tom Griffiths published an, art, an essay entitled, We Have Still Not Lived Long Enough. A key moment in the essay is Tom's analysis of Judge Stretton's fearless attempts to describe the causes of the Black Friday bushfire 70 years earlier in 1939. Stretton had written of one sawmill settlement, the full story of the killing of this small community is one of unpreparedness because of apathy and ignorance, and perhaps of something worse. Tom deduces that this, something worse, was an active half-conscious denial of the danger of fire and a kind of community complicity in the deferral of responsibility. By 2009, our knowledge of the ecology, climate and fire behaviour in this area of Victoria had increased exponentially. However, this mindset of understanding yet denial, what Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek would call fetishistic disavowal, was still in place. As Tom put it so powerfully, and I quote, the 2009 bushfires were 1939 all over again, laced with 1983, which were the Ash Wednesday bushfires. The same images, the same stories, the same words and phrases, and the same frightening and awesome natural force that we find so hard to remember and perhaps unconsciously strive to forget. As Tom points out later in the essay, one of the reasons we strive to forget is because we don't like to admit that nature can overwhelm culture. There are natural forces beyond our control, no matter how clever or technologically armed we are. But sometimes we also strive to forget because we are beneficiaries of past practices we know were wrong. The historical roots of the crises we now face are manifold and complex, but reductive interpretations direct us towards different solutions. If we're all responsible, then the solution lies in individually changing our consumption habits. If high-level policy failures are to blame, we need high-level political change. The reality, of course, <clears throat> is more complex. I argue that we, and by which I mean middle-class Australians like myself, have all been the beneficiaries of business as usual. If we're honest with ourselves, while we've often engaged in opposing or reforming the worst of its excesses, most of us have not made it our lives' work to pursue alternatives. We've known about the problems and their escalating scale, but we've suppressed this whispering in our hearts to pursue our career goals, uh, our life goals, career, family, personal growth. It's important to acknowledge this in order to be real about the scale and extent of change required and to find common ground with the defensive and uncommitted. Perhaps some of the most armoured histories we can write 
those that will withstand the pressure of business as usual, are the histories that expose our common vulnerability, yet attachment to a complex and destructive political economic machinery. Paul Kramer argues that histories are also good for widening the horizons of empathy. Not only can they potentially help us empathise with unlikely human others, but they can also draw the non-human into our moral sphere as co-inhabitants of a shared planet. It's entirely remarkable, for example, that so many histories of agricultural development leave out precisely what this transformation meant for the land's prior non-human inhabitants. Histories that include this critical perspective can inform and support contemporary efforts to have land clearing legally recognised as an animal welfare issue alongside the many other considerations. Histories that attend to the diversity and particularity of a more than human world can also help to shift our subjectivity away from the fantasy of humans as individual autonomous subjects and support patterns of thought in which we are always already entangled with non-human others. Of course, the leaders of radical remembering are Australia's indigenous peoples who have more than 60,000 years of living in this place embedded in their languages and cultures. They have, for example, stories that recall the time of coastal inundation as sea levels rose at the end of the last ice age around 13,000 years ago. The remarkable antiquity of these stories is due largely to a solid respect for the system of knowledge about country embodied in the law and the value given to this knowledge. Beholden to our vision of progress, we settlers have disparaged such knowledge and killed and impoverished its keepers. I think some of the most encouraging histories of recent times are those of Indigenous ranger programs which support Aboriginal people to again work for country, to care for country. After the great acceleration, I think we need the great reconciliation when a largely alienated world wakes up to the genius of Indigenous survival and the many debts we settlers owe to these people. As everyday Australians, we're perennially distracted from the change that needs to happen, the transformative social and cultural work that needs to be done. We need to be remembering always that we live, that all human achievements are possible only because of the ecological life support systems around us. We need to be remembering that these systems are gravely threatened. We need to remember that some people are made more vulnerable to ecological and climate breakdown than others due to the legacies of colonialism and neoliberalism in particular. And we need to be remembering that particular groups of people are intent on ignoring these facts for short-term political and economic benefit. Those of us who are storytellers, and arguably that's all of us, need to keep telling the histories that support this memory work until we story in a more sustainable and just consensual reality. Now, it's been a while since I've written poetry. I was a, a, a young poet um, as a child. I entered poetry competitions and I even won some. Uh, but I was inspired by a PhD thesis I recently examined that had an executive summary in the form of a poem. So I thought I'd give it a shot. And I was also thinking in doing this of what Tony Hughes-Dath calls poetry's power to speak to a higher law, to a judgment that has no official courts, but nevertheless holds each of us accountable. So this poem doesn't have a title yet, but it goes like this. I'm angry. I stand in the blasted saline landscapes of the Western Australian wheat belt, Staggy ruins of habitats past, sacrificed by suited men in unexceptional offices who knew the salt would rise, the slow violence in the wings of the yeoman dream. I'm angry. The cryosphere, indeed crying rivers of meltwater into rising seas, penguins precarious hatching on thin ice, polar bears retreating home, glaciers memorialised while faceless corporations prepare to colonise unfrozen frontiers. I'm angry. 
Fijians retreat from angry shores, while over the west horizon, billionaires buy cataclysm along with votes and jobs, and dust returns in drought upon drought. Fish float in putrid pools, while rice takes stolen water on stolen land. I am angry. Diminuendo of the northern spring, lonely beetles, lonely moths, empty hives, quiet space where three billion birds used to be, acidifying oceans where fish, turtles and oxygen are traded for plastic diversity. I'm angry. Unaccidental fires take rainforest for cattle. Charred anteaters no longer surprised at this grim reprise of colonial holocaust. Other fire flourishes unbidden in unseasonal heat and drought, consuming suburbs, grandmothers, dreams and hope. I'm angry. And in my anger I want to write. I want to write histories for radical remembering, of injustice, of possibility, of entanglement. I want to write barbed and incendiary histories that expose and maim the corrupt and greedy, the politicians and their corporate masters driving the relentless pursuit of cheap nature to devour and make the rich fatter while workers fight for the scraps. In quieter moments, I want to write the hopeful histories that show us how we might think and feel in a more just and habitable world. Histories of planting and petitioning, of movements built, meeting by meeting in dim kitchens, dusty halls, weedy creeks. Movements that kept the machine at bay, making space for different lives. I want to write armoured histories that withstand the cool onslaught of business as usual. Tangled and complicated stories, revealing evil within the banality that I, too, inhabit. I'd like to thank these organisations for their images. Um, I'd like very much to thank also my honours um, class that I've been talking about many of the works I referenced in this talk um, over the semester. We've had a fantastic semester of discussion and their, their ideas and feedback have inspired and um, informed me as well. I'd like to thank Keith Bradby, who I've been working on the salinity research with, and also the Australian Museum and the universities and everybody who supported this human nature lecture series, and also to you for your interest in coming along. I look forward to your feedback. Thank you. Thanks so much, Andrea. It's a very thought-provoking talk. Um, so we've got some time for questions. I actually didn't check the time before I got up. 15 minutes. 15 minutes or so. Um, so we'll take some questions. If people have them. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew Docking. Um, I worked about 33 years in the state government public service, Department of Primary Industries. And over the years I've seen so many uh, strategies and plans put together and, and then put aside and then go for another one. I was wondering if there's some sort of thought that uh, humans are, are good at or like making plans but don't try and uh, go through and enacting uh, them to the full extent. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that is a human trait. I think that, um, again, indigenous societies, they, they had a plan and they were able to stick to it pretty well and sustain themselves for, for thousands of years. I think that that's a, a failure of our, um, our political system and its short-termism. Um, it's a failure of our culture in not putting um, you know, the, the, the things that need to be priorities um, at the centre of our economy and the centre of our, our society. Um, 
Perhaps it is also a, a failure of history insofar as um, there's a lot of wheel reinvention goes on, there's a lot of good work that gets done and then it gets abandoned because a new initiative, a new person comes in, there's people who have to create their empire and so on. Uh, and if we had a solid understanding of those histories, we would be able, we'd be able to see that, we'd be able to recognise that. So, um, yeah. I guess in our anger, we, we feel all the time the crimes against our nature, the crimes against the landscape. And what's it going to take for um, that, those crimes to be acted upon? Or, I mean, the earth justice movement um, is talked about, and, but there must be some way. I mean, you're talking about you know, the mobilization, like for the war, but there must be some avenue we can use because after all, those companies use it against uh, their loss of their business when, when a, um, an act doesn't go through for them to complete. And they, um, why can't it work the other way? Okay. Um, yes. I, so I think it's, it's complicated. I don't think there's any one avenue that we need to pursue. I think that, that there needs to be multiple avenues. Um, I think that we, we see encouraging signs of change happening already. We're seeing many, many people getting out on the streets and marching. Um, one of the problems is that it is adversarial. And uh, I, I say that we need to be angry. I don't think we can, we can deny that. But we need, to, we need to reserve a little bit of that anger for ourselves. And I guess I've been trying to make myself vulnerable here because as an environmental historian, I've, I've been flying around the country. I haven't devoted my entire life to trying to work out how to solve this problem or, or mobilise people. You know, I've had personal goals and so on outside of that. So, you know, we all, we all need to make sacrifices and build on the knowledge that we have to put, um, you know, to put nature to, or non-human nature, the non-human world, the, our life support system at the centre of everything we do. It needs to be front and centre all the time. But we have this um, uh, a kind of culture that means that if you do that and you talk about that all the time, you're seen as a raving greenie. So it's very hard to, to get around that, to have those conversations. But I think that making yourself vulnerable, saying, yep, I've benefited from this, I've been in it as well, but we, we now, the time has really come for all of us to come together and to work out how to move forward um, in a way, or in several ways. <laughs> I guess if I had all the answers, then um, I, don't, I don't know who I'd be, but I don't. Uh, but I think that we need we need to be we need to be telling these stories in appropriate channels or in diverse channels. One of the big problems, of course, is reaching um, people who are not like us. Often we we are talking to people who already believe the same kinds of things that we we think. But sorry, can I? I yep. But I'm. I agree with that, and, but what I feel is that there must be some, we would have the support to find some legal avenues because there, there is huge um, destruction that leads to loss of, like, if they want to look at it as business. There must be, um, I mean, the, the courts of law, <laughs> there would be a lot of sympathy there for, for perhaps supporting it. I know we've been talking about it amongst environmental groups and everything about earth justice. Mm. And we do see it in some countries, you know. But I, I don't know, I just feel that the time might be right to find that a legal thing, not even trying to convince other people, but really that they have committed a crime. 
you know, and what they've done? Yeah, I think that that would be easier in cases where uh, the non-human world is recognised as a legal yeah. person, which is the case in some parts of the world. But even in Bolivia, where that's been the case, there's still fires yeah. in the Amazon. Yeah. It's not, it's, it, it requires multi-pronged change. So mm -hmm. there needs to be a, the cultural shift such that these things are, are, are no longer thinkable, they're no longer doable, as well as legal pressure, political pressure, you know, it, it has to be it has to be across all fronts, yeah. uh, but it, but it has to be kind of understanding and accommodating of people's experience and and the grounds for their resistance to change because it is going to take change, <laughs> a lot of change. We're not going to win it just through having some legal battles. Uh, hi, I was um, <coughs> at the weekend. I was in Canberra at a conference, um, Australian religious response to climate change, and there were people from uh, Jewish and Muslim and Christian and Hindu and Buddhist. Um, and just one thought uh, from that, many thoughts, but one uh, came out was uh, there are two forms of power in democracy, organised money or organised people, and we need to organise people. I think we probably need to organise both. <laughs> but organising people, certainly. People are so complex, though. <laughs> Thank you for the talk. It was very interesting. Um, I'd just like to say, if you're talking about grassroots, we actually still need to go back to the schools and actually start doing something at that level. I mean, we're doing things about growing vegetables and, and things like that, but we need to go to all the schools and make sure we know about the, the different rubbish things, what we can do, how we can recycle, and, and do something with it. Not just, not just the adults. I think we've missed the bike. I think we need to go down to the, the schools. Yep. Absolutely. Um, at the moment in, in many school curricula, I know that in Western Australia they have a sustainable schools initiative, but it's not mandatory, which is just extraordinary really in the, in the, the times we're facing now. In Italy they've just mandated that all school children will learn about climate change. We, we don't even have that. Children can go through school, and they might, depending on the school and the teacher and how they do their curriculum, they might get some of that, but they also might graduate from school not getting any formal education. In, um, in, the, in the science of climate change even, which is, yeah, very remarkable. And I think you're absolutely right. It does need to, it needs to start at that level. Um, so looking at history as knowledge and information and something to kind of build on, we kind of have to acknowledge that we're making our own histories today. And it's kind of, as like, I'm just talking about like myself and my generation, it's kind of just like, how do you build up that hope again when you talk to your friends, like you have like, you know, your social media and all that situation and it's not at the forefront of people's minds, um, especially un unless it's like such, like a confronting issue such as the bushfires today. Like we all know that sea levels are rising. We all know that, I guess like within this room that <coughs> climate change is a real issue. But when you look around, like, even democracy isn't doing anything anymore. Like, how do you come back from that? Like, even political protests, like the, the, the strike for climate change, has that actually done anything? Not yet. Um, not, not yet, but I think, I think that it will go on. I think that people understand that this issue isn't going away. It's not going to disappear. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the earth itself is speaking and will continue to do so, and as it does, um, there will be more of these kinds of events like the, um, like the bushfires, uh, the recent bushfire or the current bushfire crisis 
that will keep nudging in on our, on our denial. And I think eventually it will, it will become impossible. And sometimes those processes can happen very quickly. Uh, and I guess that's, that's another thing history, history teaches us, and I didn't really have time to put it in the talk today. But the collapse of the Soviet Union, for example, a lot of people felt like the Soviet Union would go on forever. It, it, there, was, there was very little sense that it was going to suddenly collapse. And then it did. Suddenly the wall came down. There had been pressure, there had been signs, but nobody knew when it was going to happen. And it, it happened quite unexpectedly and quickly in a lot of ways. Through... Um, quite contingent circumstances. So, you know, there's no magical formula for change. There's no, um, you know, history isn't a crystal ball or a kind of looking glass into, into the future. Um, but it, it does provide a reason for hope that with sustained pressure, with, um, you know, multi-pronged um, changes, with, with cultural change beside political change, uh, lots of different things going on and people drawing hope from that, it can, make, it can create a kind of momentum of its own. And then you get a few disastrous events that come in on top of that and suddenly the penny flips and people are, are across it. We can only hope that that moment arrives fast enough before we have too many of those um, disastrous events that erodes our, um, our capacity to effectively deal with it. Um, my question is a little bit related to that. I've just spent the day down the road at a climate change conference presenting on climate change adaptation. And we've been looking at this question of well, how do you derive an economic return from investing in adaptation and resilience in our landscape? And we seem to be having these two parallel conversations. We know that we've embedded enormous vulnerability in our landscape and we can see that playing out today um, in terms of human life, in terms of our settlements, our properties, our infrastructure. And we know that we have these economic systems that just can't account for that in our models and we can't work out how to actually factor that in and how to actually pay to protect ourselves against that. Um, but we're so wedded to this system that we don't see it as changeable. I mean, even though that history has showed us that empires collapse, societies collapse, political systems collapse, ideologies collapse, why are we so wedded to this sort of neoliberal idea and the economic systems and things that are human-made and that we've built? And do you think those previous societies were as wedded and didn't see that change coming? Yeah, that's, that's a big question. Um, and I think, as with most things, it's a complex kind of explanation at which I could, I could probably point to um, a, few, a few aspects. One of which is that, um, in, in some ways, the, the, the changes that we've seen have enabled people to um, increase their standard of living. So, things appear objectively to have improved for a significant number of people in the world. So they have some kind of investment and buy-in to the system. Um, on the other hand, there's been an eroding of um, education and eroding, particularly in the US, probably not so much here, but an eroding of kind of critical capacity. Um, there is an increasing inequality there and it, differing work patterns. You have people who are extremely educated and capable but actually too busy to engage in a lot of um, work outside their, their paid role. And then on the other hand, people who don't have the capacity but have more time to, to do that. And, and increasingly, there's, there's less in the middle, fewer people in the middle. Um, so in terms of the economics, I think we need to remember that there are a group of people at the top who are hogging a lot of that money, hogging a lot of that resource, and far too much of it is being concentrated. There's an accumulation of wealth towards the top. Um, 
because of the system of um, well, capital accumulation that we support and allow, you know, we don't have a very effective system of redistribution. We do, we do have some. I mean, we still have a progressive taxation system of a sort, but um, but it could go it could go further than that. It's just as we saw at the last election, people have lived under a neoliberal system for so long that they don't they've lost faith that the system that the community will take care of them. So everybody would rather have their own individual tax cut than buy into the broader vision of um, a society in which everybody is provided for. So I think those, those are some of the, the issues. I, I don't know how to put them all together. I think that would, that would take a, a book and it will. I mean, there are many people who have these ideas, but it's, it's very contested. Yes, um, one of your slides showed um a protester with a sign saying, um, history won't forgive Adani, then it was crossed out and it said Queensland. Queensland. And you made a comment about it, about you didn't know whether he had it right. Uh, would you like to elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, I've got mates in Queensland, they're all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think. I mean, I think what went on in the election and what and what's going on here is a little bit more complicated than this. This is obviously uh, reductive for the purpose of a of a placard, um, and I don't. I don't think that you can blame a whole state for for that outcome. I think you can blame um, um, fear mongering, lack of leadership at a federal level, um, in particular. Because Queensland would be in a, in, in a different position if there was a different strategy for regional renewal for those, for those people. If there was a dedicated strategy of establishing renewable energy industries in these areas, then we wouldn't have had the outcome that we have. So, um, it, and I guess part of what I've been arguing is that it is not unreasonable that people want a decent um, standard of living, that people want jobs for their children. Um, and I think, I think we need to acknowledge that and not not kind of patronise Queensland or talk about Quexit. We need to understand that there are, there are people there who, um, who just, yeah, who just want, want the best for their, for their family, for their kids, just like you or I would. And to, to build that kind of empathy and think about the kinds of systems that we could generate that wouldn't, um, wouldn't require us to engage in these kinds of destructive developments. Uh, thanks so much for your wonderful and stimulating talk. My question is simply, um, you're involved with university students um, teaching, lecturing. What is your gauge on the generation of students that you're teaching in terms of their take on climate change and the potential for activism, the potential to make change? Do you feel there are seeds of hope in, in the students that, that, you're, that you're teaching? Do you feel like they are sufficiently um, equipped with knowledge and of history and current the current situation to take rage seriously? And, and well, my honours students are now, <laughs> but I'll have to say they didn't uh, they didn't have any choice. They had to take my unit because such are. Uh, such are the conditions in our universities these days that we aren't able to offer the full suite of units that we could previously. Um, yes, there are seeds of hope. There are a small um, committed group of activist students at universities. There are also a large number of students who are at universities in order to gain a credential. 
Um, there are students who are at university who are also working two or three other jobs and simply don't have time for any of that because they need to pay the rent and, I don't know, maintain a child or whatever they need to do. Um, so I, I don't... I, I do see seeds of hope, but I also empathise with students and some of the pressures that, that they are under. And I know that there's a whole kind of generational debate about this um, and whether the, the millennials are just pampered slackers or whether they are um, genuinely um, suffering the, the, the kind of outcomes of a, an economy that drives them towards membership of the precariat. Um, so, yeah, I, I do see some signs of hope, but in fact, not as, man, not, not as much as I would like. I was really shocked, in fact, that some of my very highly educated and intelligent honours students, when we first sat down at the beginning of the semester, they said, oh, I didn't take, I, I wouldn't have ordinarily taken this unit because I thought it would be environmentalist. Um, and they said, oh, I thought that that would all be fixed by um, fertilising the oceans. And I just thought, whoa, we've really got some work to do here. So, yes, there's... There is some hope there. And I guess we just keep, we just keep storying, we keep inviting those conversations until there's more. Um, I'm a history teacher. And um, Great. I've been <laughs> for years trying to get students, I guess, to think critically, from active citizens. And in New South Wales, we've just re-brought in the civil rights movement as part of the HSC. Excellent. Um, but it's stories of hope, I find, rather than the stories of it's going to, to the pot, you know. Um, that really inspired. So um, I was really surprised last year I went to East Germany, well, previous East Germany, and they were talking about the destruction of the landscape, how Leipzig was just so terrible, and how in 20 years it's regenerated, and, everyone, and the levy, and everyone's kept the levy going. And so these stories of hope, um, I had no idea. So where do we find those kind of environmental good stories that really do give the hope? The kids, by the way, are doing their sustainability. It's one of the things every kid in New South Wales has to do. Excellent. But, um, Excellent. You're, you're ahead of us. <laughs> but I was just wondering, where do you get the stories? Oh, where do you get the stories? Yeah, well, I mean, environmental history has probably been a little bit at fault here because, in fact, there are more stories, more declensionist stories, um, than there are hopeful stories. I think that probably actually is a fair reflection of the world and where we're at. I think that we're, there are more... Um, stories of decline and destruction than there are stories of hope. Um, but, but yeah, th those hopeful stories are important and they, they are out there. I mean, there, there are case studies in environmental hope. Um, there's a book of that name in, in WA. I'm just trying to think of some other positive examples of hopeful stories. I'm writing a history of land care at the moment with, uh, with Keith Bradby, which, we're, again, we're hoping is going to be a positive story, although it's, it's a little bit of a sad story at the end because land care has been in decline in Western Australia, so we hope to we hope to also learn from that, and you know why why is it what's what's happened that it's declined, but um, but in the course of the land care movement, there has also been regeneration. Some of the problems um, have been fixed, not on the grand scale, but at a local scale, sometimes they've been addressed, and and maybe that's all we can hope for is those those local stories of um, you know the small scale stories of regeneration. If we think about marine environmental history, there is the recovery of uh, whale populations after the, the great slaughter of the, the 19th and 20th century. And yes, you know, small-scale whaling does go on. But essentially, some of those populations have, have recovered, maybe not to the extent that they were before, but they're on an upward um, trajectory, not a downward one. 
great white sharks, likewise, are recovering, as we, as we find in Western Australia. <laughs> take out a surfer every now and then. Sorry, I actually shouldn't laugh about that. That's terrible. The, shark, the great white shark population is, is recovering as well. Um, the, um, the snapper fishery in Shark Bay, speaking of sharks in Western Australia, collapsed, um, but has been brought back through good management. So there's, there's those kinds of stories that, I don't know, perhaps they lack the drama of the great collapses and extinctions. Um, but No. The salinity question is a really interesting one, actually, because the, the declining rainfall in the southwest means that the, uh, the spread of salinity is being slowed by climate change. So if there is a, uh, a silver lining on the cloud of rainfall decline, it would be that the, uh, the groundwater recharge is slowing, so the, um, some areas will achieve salinity equilibrium earlier than was predicted, um, and the... the the, um, the rising of the groundwater in other areas is now slowing down. But of course there's a big flip side to, to that. I mean there have, been, there have been areas, I mean farmers have adapted, they've adapted to salt bush grazing, um, salt tolerant crops, um, using perennial pastures. So I guess these are some of the stories that Dagmar de Groot is telling around the Little Ice Age. You know there's the stories of famine and decline and the Vikings all dying out in Greenland and so on. Um, but there's also the Dutch and how they managed to, to prosper and um, innovate throughout that time. I think we need to be a little bit careful about that because it's, you know, these can be altogether too comforting histories that suggest it's going to be all right, we'll just innovate and adapt our way out of it. I mean, sure, we need innovation and adaption, but we also need mitigation. We need to try and um, keep, keep a lid on it. But, you know, there are those positive stories as well that say we're not inevitably consigned to doom. People have risen to challenges in the past um, and turned declines around and they're important to tell as well. Thanks so much Andrea. Um, it's been a fantastic talk and thank you for fielding questions so well as well. So please join me in thanking Andrea. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.